Healing means to me to be vulnerable because I often think when we are diagnosed, as I was with cancer, that you want to go inward and you don't want to you don't want to burden anybody. And I learned that I needed to be vulnerable and I needed to reach out and have others be there for me. Healing as a caregiver means finding a way to make sense of some of the chaos that is in our heads and hearts through difficult times. Healing to me means being at peace enough with your trauma or your story to uh, be able to tell it without tears and have it be able to help others. Welcome to How We Heal, a Caring Bridge conversation on hope, health, and healing. It's a new year and something brand new from CaringBridge, our very own podcast. I'm Bridget Bonner, the Chief Experience Officer for CaringBridge. I'm Kathy Wurzer. I'm a professional question asker and storyteller. I'm a broadcast journalist who is also a big fan of the work that your team, Bridget, is doing at CaringBridge on how folks find their unique path toward healing. This podcast is an interesting experiment. We know that podcasts are very popular right now, and really it's about the storytelling. You know, people love to learn through storytelling, and in fact, that's what CaringBridge is in many ways. 300,000 people a day are coming to witness people on health journeys. And our thought is behind this podcast, could we help more people by sharing the good work of CaringBridge and the good work of how people find healing and how family caregivers may get through a tough time when they have a loved one on a health journey. I think it's a great idea. Thanks. And it just feels like a natural extension of the work started. Was it 1997 by Sona, your founder? Yeah, Sona Maring is the woman who founded Caring Bridge in 1997. And it's an amazing story. She did that right here in Egan, Minnesota. And she was a software engineer by training. She had two good friends, Joanne and Darren, that were having a, a baby prematurely difficult and high-risk situation. So she, like any good friend, said, hey, how can I help? And they said, call this list of friends. After making a couple of calls, she's like, whoa, this is so draining. There has to be a better way. So she went and coded up the very first CaringBridge site. And that word CaringBridge came out of the words caring for Bridget, which was the name of their baby girl. Oh. Yes. That's a great story. Yes. And it was really a way for, you know, back in 1997, people didn't have cell phones in their pockets. Some people didn't even really use email that extensively. So how are you going to get the word out? How are you going to connect? You can't text message people and things like that. And so this caring bridge was this idea of connecting people. Baby Bridget only lived a very short nine days, but the thing that was remarkably different was when everybody was gathered at her service, everybody already knew what happened. And so they were there simply to love Joanne and, and Darren and provide them that support because they were already connected in a very meaningful way. That is a great story. There are so many stories that are powerful and courageous on Caring Bridge. I have several friends who are going through health journeys mm-hmm. right now, and yes. they're on Caring Bridge. My good friend, Bruce Kramer, was also on Caring Bridge. I know you know Bruce. Yes. He lived Amazing. really an extraordinary life with ALS. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything that I've learned, I guess, in my long career as a journalist, is that storytelling 
is really the most powerful way to connect, to learn, to understand, to heal. And I know that's what Caring Bridge is all about, too. Yeah, absolutely. I think that in the healthcare system, they would call it social support. And it's this idea that medicine can do a lot, but it's social support and meaningful connections and people telling their stories, getting the love and knowing that they matter back from people that they care about deeply. That just fuels people through a really difficult time. Give me a framework here about the type of stories you have that you explore on the Caring Bridge site. So framework is a really interesting word because going back to Caring Bridge's 20th anniversary, which is a couple years ago, we decided to put a call out for our users to say, how is it that they got through tough times? How did they get through these health journeys, both the patients and the caregivers? And we aligned with a friend and filmmaker named David McLean oh, from National him. Geographic. He's great. You know David. Yes, he's great. He does a Amazing, amazing work. And we talked a lot about how do we bring these stories to life? How do you talk about things that people don't want to talk about? And so we actually, through the users, learned that there's multiple paths, multiple possibilities for people to find their path to healing, even in cases where cure is not possible. Well, I'm glad you said that because the two stories that I have found so far that our friends will be listening to, both individuals have their own unique path toward healing. Mm -hmm. So with this experiment, Bridget, I'm going to be the reporter this time. Yes. Instead of the host, you are the host, I'm the reporter. So I found, I know, right? So I have found a couple of stories. The first story is going to be with Michael Bischoff. Mm -hmm. And wow, Michael is this amazing individual who's from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I know you know him. I do. He's just, he is just love. He's sort of a tall, slender, loving man. Can I share a story about him? Yes, please. You know, I met him several years ago through some working that we had done with the University of Minnesota. Michael was referred to call us because he had been a CaringBridge user extensively, but he had a few opportunities for improvement for us. And he wondered if we would meet with them. Now, being in, you know, internet business, we don't often have people physically come into the office. So we're like, sure. So here it is on a very cold, almost zero degree February day, this tall man walks into the office wearing a bike helmet. Now, Michael had biked 13 miles to our CaringBridge office to give us some feedback and some loving criticism, as I call it. Now, this is after his diagnosis with glioblastoma. This is after he had a craniectomy. So this man is on a mission to help people find their path to healing, and we so treasure him. Michael is a very special person who's been living with brain cancer far beyond the normal survival rate for that type of tumor. But the thing that intrigues me is that Michael has done far more than survive with cancer. He's been thriving, even though it has been a very difficult process at times. He's done a lot of public speaking about his journey to healing and wholeness, especially when it comes to the relationships he has with medical professionals. Now, this is from an event in Shakopee, Minnesota, back in 2018. But I think all of us can do both of those things both the the deep listening that's so reverential and the honestly expressing both what's most painful and what's most sacred for us. And I think that's done through honesty and vulnerability of both care providers and those being cared for. And we can all lead to that transformation. Well, and just as Bruce called you out and pulled your vulnerability into his conversation with you, I think that's all of our jobs to call out in each other, especially 
doctors. So my oncologist says that his job is to keep up tall professional boundaries, and I tell him my job is to jump over those boundaries into your heart. And Michael Bischoff's journey started at the end of August of 2015. He was 44 years old, a father of two kids, and had, at that point, been in good health. His beloved wife, Jenny, picks up the story. Yeah, so Michael was having headaches over the course of about a month and barely severe and throwing up and feeling horrible and trying to figure that out. And so we finally, finally just, he had an MRI and... The neurologist was like, well, let's just, we'll just do an MRI to maybe rule stuff out and make sure, you know, everything's fine. And then he said, he told Michael at the end of that day, come back tomorrow and bring your family. And so we knew that there was something going on. And I believe that we rode our bikes to this appointment. My amazing wife, Jenny, and I were sitting in a neurosurgeon's This is Michael office. retelling the story of his diagnosis during a public event sponsored by CaringBridge back in 2017. As he tells his story, Michael and his wife, Jenny, were waiting for the neurologist's diagnosis. So we're meeting him for the first time. We're sitting in his office. He comes in and he says, he's got my MRI image of my brain on the screen. And he said, there's a big thing in there. It needs to come out. I can do it in two days or two weeks. What do you want? I think maybe also block some of those things out, but I remember seeing that image and of the brain tumor, and it was very obvious that there was a tumor. The surgeon came back in the, in the room, and we agreed to do surgery in two days. And then we kind of, in some blurry fashion, managed to ride our bikes home, and just everything had changed. Four years later, it's kind of hard to remember what life was like before. Bridget, it's a common refrain heard from those living with life-changing illness, patients and caregivers alike. Michael Bischoff's life definitely changed. The tumor buried in his brain is the most aggressive kind of cancer. And doctor was as sensitive and skillful as possible about asking me if and when I wanted to know the statistics about average survival for this diagnosis, and I didn't want to know at first. In the next office visit, when I did finally say, yes, I want to know, Dr. Trusheim drew me a nice graph, curve, that showed, he said, depending on which study you believe, average survival is between 15 and 18 months. I think he said he tended to prefer 18 months. <laughs> I prefer to. <laughs> and I was still overwhelmed and in shock. Well, who wouldn't be overwhelmed after receiving news like that? Michael was on what he calls the cancer roller coaster. There was chemo and radiation, laser surgeries and more chemo and more radiation, clinical trials. But in addition to all of that, Michael decided to actively work toward healing, even if a cure is not available to him. I think of healing generally as the movement towards health and wholeness. And I see the foundation of all healing as in relationships, in relationships with friends and family and others, 
in relationship with health professionals and other healers, in relationship with the natural world, with the divine. And I think all forms of healing come through relationships in some way. And the practice of cultivating those relationships and love, I think, is, is always the foundation of the practice of healing. Before my diagnosis with brain cancer, I thought healing and people that talked about it was touchy-feely, weird stuff. But now, if I was talking to someone that was just diagnosed with a, a large health problem, one thing I would say is that healing is not only possible, but it's inevitable. And that doesn't mean that there'll be a cure, but it does mean to me that there's always a gift of healing Our job, as I see it, as people seeking healing, is to pay attention to what kind of healing is being offered and step towards that, open up to that. And I think it's a paradox with seeking healing for physical problems like terminal brain cancer that nothing we do in most cases can guarantee physical full healing, but that I I believe more and more with each day of unexpected being alive that if we pay attention to what healing is being offered, and whether it's emotional or in some relationship or in our diet, in our activities, if we're true to those steps, it will be the best thing we can do for our physical health and recovery. But we can't make it happen or know that it's going to. There's always healing being offered we can move towards, and I think that will always benefit our physical health too but it won't guarantee it, won't guarantee a cure. I've been taught by multiple friends that healing is very possible without a cure and that healing is very possible while we're dying and healing is very possible while we have no idea what's going to help us in our physical illness. Healing is always possible. So one time I was in the hospital, I had a spinal fluid leaking out of my head, which is not good. (laughs) And so the doctors stuck a tube up my back, threaded it along my spine to drain spinal fluid out of my back to ease the pressure on my head. And during that time, there was a woman cleaning my room in the hospital whose name was Pema. She told me a story about her son when he was a teenager, had a serious cancer, and she took him to a monastery in Tibet, where they're from, and they prayed for him, and she said he was healed. And then she she walked over next to me in my hospital bed, and she looked at me, and she said, with authority, prayers and doctors can work together. And she breathed this peace and trust into me at a time where doctors could not give me reassurance and peace. And I think... What she illustrated for me is that we can't make healing happen, and we usually can't even predict when it will happen, physically or emotionally or in relationship. But what we can do is we can make a hospitable space where healing can come as a gift of grace. So I think grace is is receiving what's being offered to us generously, which we can't control or grasp, but we can open to both for ourselves and others. And so Pema, who was cleaning my hospital room, was helping create this hospitable space 
literally in, the, in my room, as well as emotionally and spiritually for a gift of grace to be received, both with her words and her presence. And my leak in my spinal fluid did stop. And I think that her helping create that environment where grace can be received is one reason. Pema, who's cleaning my room, was at least as valuable to me as the brain surgeon and the nurses and doctors. I found the opportunity a couple months after to go to her team meeting in the hospital basement of all the people that clean rooms in the hospital. And I I told her team our story of how she came in to my room and what it meant to me. And I was crying as I did that. And Pema was there and also crying. And she and I hugged and her supervisor then encouraged everyone on her team to stand up and give her a standing ovation for the impact she had on me. So I think making hospitable space for grace to occur and healing to be received can happen from any position or angle, whether it's a brain surgeon or someone cleaning the room or a friend visiting. I think any, any of us have the opportunity to welcome grace in and miracles and healing can happen. Healing for Michael Bischoff comes in many forms, prayer, connection with others, and nature. One chilly day in the fall of 2019, I had the opportunity to hike down a steep hill with Michael to a place along the Mississippi River in South Minneapolis that he tries to visit every day. We're at the edge of the Mississippi River, next to my favorite tree that's leaning into the river, and our butts are getting sandy. (laughs) (laughs) They are. (laughs) But why do you like it down here so much? I like to sit and watch the river go past, and I like to look at my favorite tree friend here and listen to the wisdom of that tree and feel connected with other people who have died or in other places. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I find it helping me relax as well as selling out as I have brain cancer and think about the possibility of dying. And I feel like the river and my tree are two of my favorite healers and like to receive their treatment. How does that manifest to receive the healing power of nature and this river and the trees and the animals nearby that when I was first diagnosed with brain cancer a friend of mine told me about a prescription he had for me which was from research from Japan about what's called forest bathing and my friend said his prescription for me was to sit in the forest or next to the water at least 30 minutes a day and that that increases your immunity and decreases your stress and all kinds of other things. (laughs) So I started just doing the simple thing of I'm going to spend at least half an hour a day every day and I'm doing that for the last four years (laughs) and I'm still alive. (laughs) This is a beautiful place. I can see where you gain strength from this place. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you about healing because when I first met you We've been talking a lot about how one heals and what that looks like for people. When you were first diagnosed to the present, 
how has your concept, your understanding of healing changed? I want lots of lots of kinds of healing, <laughs> <laughs> including I want to stay alive and not die from brain cancer. Haven't given up on that one. I want healing that keeps me alive, preferably to cure me from brain cancer, but I think no one's discovered how to do that yet. So at least I would like healing that keeps me alive and full of life for now and while my kids are alive as kids. I think there's many other layers of healing too that after I first was diagnosed with cancer and realized most people die pretty quickly from the brain cancer that I have. I realized what's more important to me is not how long I live, but how much I can love and let love move through me while I'm alive, not how many days I live with brain cancer. Michael will tell you that his ideas around healing keep changing every day, and that's partly based on his health and prognosis. His wife, Jenny, finds her definition of healing has also evolved. When this all started, I don't know how much I thought about what is healing. I mean, it wasn't something in in the center of my life. And I think if someone asked me what was healing, I would maybe say more like, oh, you, you know, you get better from something, illness or whatever. But I feel like now it's so much bigger. I feel like it's, it's not necessarily a cure. It's not necessarily like being fixed, but it's, it's, it's a whole body thing. It's a spirit thing and it's relationships and it's, it's, it doesn't even necessarily end when you, when somebody dies. I think it can keep going. And I feel like I've been learning about healing myself and learning about my own patterns. I th- I feel like I've been healing in this process in a way, slowly. Where do you find your strength? Well, I find my strength, I think, partly from Michael and from my kids. And because I, I'm doing this for all of us, for, I mean, you know, because I love them and because I want to, I don't know, I find the strength partly, it's not, it's not just a one-way street. It's not just like I'm giving, I'm, I'm receiving a lot from my kids and Michael and from friends and family. And so that's one place I get my strength. I feel like that there's a sense that things are going to be okay, even if they're not maybe always okay. And I don't know where it comes from, honestly, but it's there. There's some kind of love that's holding us all together that is under the surface. And that is, it's connections, it's relationships, it's, it's love. When I found out that the cancer in my brain was growing again, a friend of mine responded to my post about that on Karen Bridge by saying that when she heard that news, she sat in her rocking chair and wept with compassion for what my family was having to carry. And that as she was crying, she said at one point it it shifted to a feeling of a smile. She said, a tender smile. And seeing and feeling the ways my family was resting in a field of great love and that she felt moved and grateful for that love that was holding us. And I sometimes feel and receive that field of great love holding me and my family, but I I don't always. And so when my friend, through her Karen Bridge comment, reflected that back to me, both the 
sorrow as well as that larger field of love holding us. It helped me feel more of the sorrow and the gratitude for that love that holds us. That is just so powerful and so profound. And there are so, Michael and Jenny and their ecosystem, again, they're so special. And we, we witness this from our many users, which, Kathy, is just why we're working on these stories and trying to put them into a framework so people can help find their path. We've seen how Michael found his path. But our simple framework is really three things. It's about either believing which is around faith and spirituality. And we heard from Michael, you know, it doesn't have to be a religious thing. It can be nature. It can be love. It can be connections. Right. Belonging is the second piece of the framework. It's it's about family. It's about friends. It's whatever tribe, if, if you will, that you belong to that can fuel you. And finally, there's be or being. And it's really around meaning-making. It's how is it that we derive our sense of purpose, our sense of fulfillment, and if we're brave enough to confront these really difficult times like Michael is, think the love and support that comes back can give you more meaning. And while your life is never the same as it used to be, it is a life well-lived and well-loved. Well said, by the way. And, you know, in Michael's story, what also leapt to the fore for me was his comments about healing. You know, he talks a lot about healing and that healing is always possible, even if a cure is not. Absolutely. So because I'm the reporter here, I went off and talked to the head of the University of Minnesota Center for Spirituality and Healing, Mm -hmm. Dr. Mary Jo Kreitzer, about that concept. And this is what she said. Well, healing is really about wholeness. It's about integration of body, mind, and spirit. Curing is eradication or amelioration of disease. And so there are times that people cannot be cured, but they can achieve healing or wholeness in their life. So that, for some, is a paradox. But healing and curing are actually very different concepts. So as people are moving towards death... It's possible to heal, not physically, but maybe in a deep spiritual way. Is healing always possible? That seems like it could be difficult for someone to get there, depending on each individual circumstance. That's a great question. And I do feel that healing is possible. I would say, Kathy, healing's not always possible. Healing is actually one of those concepts that um, while there's been writing about healing and there's been some research about healing, I think it's a little bit like mystery. It's hard to quantify it. And if you interviewed six people and asked them what healing looked like to them, you would probably hear very different things. As a nurse, uh, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with people during both joyful and profoundly difficult times in their life. And one of the things that has really struck me is sometimes in the midst of what seem like just inextricably awful situations, people can emerge with a sense of healing and wholeness and integrity. So healing is possible. The second thing I've learned about healing is that it's a process, and it takes time. And sometimes people will talk about getting over a loss. I don't think people get over losses. I think they get 
through losses. And I think one of the things I've noticed as I've worked with people is that when people experience great losses in their life, sometimes the only way to get to the other side is to face the fear, the grief, the loss head on. And sometimes in facing it, people can get to a different place. Life is never the same. It's not like people get over it. Life can still be good, you know, but life is different. I guess the final thing I'd say about healing is that it's a very individual process. So what is healing for one person, which might be their religious faith? That may actually not be healing for another person. So you look at all the different paths to healing. There's certainly our spiritual paths and religious paths, but some people find writing or music or being in nature or just being with family and friends that those are the things that contribute most to their healing. And that was Dr. Mary Jo Kreitzer with the Earl E. Bakken Center for Spirituality and Healing at the University of Minnesota. So what's the takeaway from Michael's story and Dr. Kreitzer's comments? Well, I think that healing is possible, even if a cure is not. And healing means different things to each individual. But it's a journey toward wholeness in mind, body, and spirit. And there are many paths toward that goal with the journey unique to each of us. We would love feedback from folks and from our work um, being done. People can come to CaringBridge.org and we hope that people will send us cards, letters, emails, tweets, posts, whatever, because we want to learn, is this helpful? And how can we be more helpful as people go through health journeys? Now, remember, we have a second story coming up. So people should just be aware of that. We'll send it out and we want your feedback on that too. Yeah, see you next time. All right, see you later. Take care. Bye. That episode was recorded January 9th, 2020. We are heartbroken to tell you that Michael Bischoff died on February 10th, 2020. He was 49 years old. Michael leaves behind his wife, Jenny, and two children, Isaiah and Grace, other family members, and many, many friends. As his obituary said, Michael loved being a dad more than anything. He also loved to ride his bike, take long walks by the Mississippi River, ask hard questions, and travel to new places. Michael Bischoff is off to his next adventure. This episode was produced by Palisade Productions. The editor is Jenna Lee Park. For more information on the work being done by Caring Bridge, please visit caringbridge.org. <laughs>